There was perhaps no more towering intellectual in the middle of the 20th century than the theologian Paul Tillich. Tillich's lectures, it has been said, would lead to standing room only audiences and his sermons would likewise fill cathedrals. He was just that profound of a thinker. And while Tillich was fascinated by any number of topics, perhaps his chief preoccupation as a theologian centered around the question of human anxiety. That is, the question of how to appreciate life in the face of constant anguish. The question of how to accept anxiety without being overcome by it. Well, I found myself returning to Paul Tillich recently for many reasons, but most specifically because we are no doubt living in a moment of heightened anxiety. We are quite rightly anxious about our isolation from one another and about what that is doing to us. Anxious about the political and social polarization that we see happening in the world around us. Anxious about the consequential decisions we're being forced to make for ourselves and for our families. Anxious about the uncertainty of our jobs and of our industries and of our livelihoods. Yes, we right now are anxious about all of these things and so many more. And thus, returning to one of the 20th century's foremost thinkers on the question of anxiety seemed to me both personally and pastorally prudent. And so I went to Tillich's most memorable work, a 1952 essay called The Courage to Be. Now, in many ways, The Courage to Be is a 200-page distillation of Tillich's entire theological corpus. And I commend it to anyone who wants to peer briefly into the mind of this trenchant thinker. But here now is why I bring up Paul Tillich and the courage to be this morning. Among the many helpful insights to be found in the courage to be is Tillich's celebration of the ancient philosophy, Stoicism. Followed immediately then by his analysis of where he believes Stoicism ultimately fails. Now, Stoicism, you may recall, is the philosophy that enjoins us as human beings to simply accept the vicissitudes of life, to take the good and the bad even handedly, to recognize our inability to control the universe, and to resign ourselves to being a small part of its inner workings. When we can give up our desire to control the world and just accept the beauty and the order of all that is, we can then accept life as a gift and with it take both the good and the bad with grace and with equanimity. Such is Stoicism. And such a life philosophy, Tillich points out, is not only wise and commendable, but at least in these broad strokes given just now, is perfectly harmonious with Christian faith. However, the problem with this philosophy, Tillich then points out, is that its only answer for how to face the anxieties of life 
is simply to accept these as part and parcel of the order of things. In other words, it teaches that comfort from anxiety comes simply through our acceptance of it. It holds out no hope for any kind of salvation from it. And this, for Tillich the theologian, was why a reconsideration of the Christian gospel was so important for the modern human being. For understanding the salvation found through Christ's resurrection, Tillich believed, was that which ultimately gives one the existential courage to be. Now I am grossly oversimplifying Paul Tillich. But this brief sketch will have to do for now because I don't bring up Paul Tillich this morning in order to talk about Paul Tillich. No, instead I bring up Paul Tillich this morning in order to talk about Martin Luther. That is, to talk about the father of the Protestant Reformation. The man who, through his reconsideration of the Apostle Paul's words, the just shall live by faith, changed the very face of the Christian church. And I bring up Martin Luther this morning because there is perhaps no historical personage who can better typify the human propensity for anxiety and for anguish than can Martin Luther. For stories of Martin Luther and his givenness to anguish are legendary. In fact, it is said that Luther would often be so anguished that he was given to pacing around his room speaking verbal accusations against the fears and self-incriminations that lurked in his mind. And these fears and these feelings of self-unworthiness, we must note, were for Luther a form of evil. For Luther, these were not just brain events. For Luther, these were not just peculiarities or quirks of his personality. No, for Luther, these were spiritual forces. These were powers and principalities of the air, as the Apostle Paul before him had called them. And day and night, Luther would wrestle with these feelings. And person of faith, though he was, he could find no relief from them. That is, until that fateful night when he came across the verse, the just shall live by faith, and his entire conception of the Christian life was changed. Suddenly, Luther said, he realized that despite the fears and the anguish that inevitably plague a human life, if the resurrection of Christ indeed did happen, then one's trust in that finished work and in all that that implies about God's love for us and about God's control over the ultimate future, if one trusts that, Luther realized, then it is enough to assuage our fears that we as individuals are responsible for our own and eternal well-being. disabused of the belief that it all hangs on and hinges upon us. 
Once more, I oversimplify. This time, Luther. But the oversimplification being made cannot hardly be overemphasized. For what Luther, in effect, discovered was a theology to explain and to underpin Lady Julian of Norwich's famous dictum that all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. All manner of things shall be well, Luther realized, because we can trust in the character and in the promises of the same God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. It was a watershed moment for Luther. And from that point forward, when he would encounter others undergoing the same kind of anguish that he himself was given to undergoing, that is, when he would encounter a human being, he would counsel these individuals to remember their baptism. Remember your baptism, he would tell people. Remember your baptism. And by this, he didn't mean reflect nostalgically on the day it happened and on the minister who performed it and on the meal your family ate afterwards. Instead, he meant reflect on what this act suggested. He meant remember that in your baptism, you were buried with Christ in his death and you were raised with him in the newness of life. He meant remember that in your baptism you, like Christ, arose to the sound of God saying to you in your spirit, this is my child whom I love and with you I am well pleased. He meant remember that in your baptism you were assured of your centrality in the eternal story of God. That you matter in the grand scheme of God's story just as much as do the moon and the stars and the sun and the sky. He meant remember that in your baptism you have been saved from having to be enough on your own and from having to get it all right on your own accord. Leading me now to a story. And I'll warn you from the top, it's not a very exciting story. But the relative mundaneness of the story is what underscores its point. So with that disclaimer having been given, here goes. About four years ago now, I found myself wrestling with the decision of whether to return to school to pursue a doctoral degree or not. And at the time, I had been accepted to three schools, all of them in varying locations, and each of them entailing different financial and time commitments. I was also, at the time, keenly aware of the option not to attend any of them. At the time, Ada was only two, Juliana was a baby, new ministries were just beginning at my church that were absorbing a great deal of my time and attention, and money, as always, was not something simply growing on the trees. And at that point, good arguments could be made both to go to and not go to each of the schools on the list. 
And likewise, good arguments could be made both to go to or not go to school at all. In short, there was no right answer. But you see, the very absence of a right answer was what was paralyzing me with such anguish. Should I do this or should I do that? If I do this, it will likely mean this, but if I do this, it could mean that. And on and on and on, no matter how I ran the math, no matter what angle by which I held the gym up to the light, no matter I could not arrive at a place of peace. It was textbook anxiety. And again, I stress the relative inconsequence of the decision at hand. The reality that whether I chose to go back to college or not would be of no world-bending, world-changing significance. That is not only acknowledged in this story, but it is the very point of it. For how often is the anxiety that paralyzes us in our individual lives really based on matters of enormous worldly significance? Very seldom. Yet the very point is that inconsequential though these circumstances might seem to the rest of the world, to us in our own individual worlds, they are seismic. And they keep us up day and night. And they weigh us down. And they tease us and they taunt us by constantly whispering, but have you thought about this? And have you considered that? But what if you do that and then this happens? And what if you did do that but then didn't do this? And then they begin whispering other things like, and who are you to do this anyway? You know you don't deserve this. You know you are not enough. For this. Well, so it was for April and me as together we wrestled with this question of whether or not I should go back to school. And if to go back to school, where to? Well, I set all that up so as to finally now tell you the story. Well, so it was that one day, amid this experience of prolonged questioning and anguish, I was invited to a midday worship service at a local church where the preacher happened to be preaching on human anguish and used as her sermon illustration Martin Luther's words, Remember your baptism. Now, I won't belabor the story any further, but suffice it to say that in being reminded of these words, and in being reminded of the eternal truth that these words convey, I was thereby reminded that while my anguish was not misplaced, for this was a significant and important decision in my and my family's life, that nonetheless, no matter what we decided, we'd already been saved from the responsibility of making the right decision. That my eternal salvation and with it the salvation of my family and of the entire world was not contingent upon whether I always got everything right. And that no matter what decision I might make, I could never possibly safeguard against every negative contingency for myself and my family. 
Never. This sermon helped remind me of all of that. And thus, I was suddenly reminded of the simple yet beautiful power of entrusting myself and my family to the care and the covering of the same God who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And so I did. I took that preacher's words to heart, which means I took Luther's words to heart, and I remembered my baptism. And in so doing, I found peace amid the anguish. Leading me back now to Luther and to his own experience with anguish. You know, we don't talk much these days the way they talked in Luther's day about the reality of darkness in the world. We don't talk much these days about forces that can steal our peace from us and that frustrate God's hopes and intentions for us as flourishing human being. We just don't. And that's a shame because these dark forces are no different really than they were in Luther's day. But because we are now, and quite rightly, too sophisticated to think of evil as red devils swirling around us with pointy horns, we therefore reduce these attacks of self-unworthiness that come upon us. And this kind of paralysis born of incessant self-questioning and self-scrutiny, we reduce these to mere personality quirks or realities of the human condition. And sure, yes, of course they are these things, but they are so much more than these things. For any sober assessment will see that these things seem to encroach upon us far more than they ever seem to emerge merely from within us. Right? That is, they all too often come to us as external accusations and as disruptions from without rather than as conscious decisions from within. And thus, as people of faith, we do well to reclaim a more robust theological language for talking about these things. For indeed, we wrestle not only against flesh and blood, the Apostle Paul writes, but also against principalities, powers, darkness, spiritual wickedness. Dear family, let us not be so educated and so sophisticated and so hypermodern or even postmodern as to be embarrassed of this language. For really, what else is it other than a darkness outside of ourselves that would keep whispering to us in our weakness? Now, I know you're thinking about this, but are you sure about that? And don't you realize then this? And have you considered that? And don't you know if you do this, then others will think of you that? And what else is it other than 
an altogether evil kind of force, something altogether separate from ourselves that would ever whisper to us, you know you're not good enough for that. You know that what you're doing, that who you are, is not really enough, right? You know that if people find out who you really are, that no one will ever really love you. Ever heard those before? Family, these are not just personality quirks. And these are not just attendant realities of the human condition. These are powers. These are principalities. These are the sure and certain voices of darkness in the world. These are the sources of cosmic anxiety from which Martin Luther found peace only in his trust that Jesus Christ was indeed raised from the dead. And that if he was, the best thing we can do in the face of life's most pressing anxieties is to remember our baptism and the assurance it carries of God's constant care and covering upon us. All of this then to say, we are living in an acutely anxious moment. Many of us are wrestling with hard decisions about what to do for our children's education this year. Many of us are fearful of what the ongoing pandemic might mean for our jobs and our livelihoods. Many of us are caught in the crossfire of our increased social and political polarization. Just as many of us are caught in the cacophonous chaos of the quiet, which is to say are defenseless against the self-scrutiny and self-doubt that comes with isolation from the world outside. Yes, we are living in a particularly anxious moment. And so knowing this and acknowledging this as your pastor, I would then encourage us with this. Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism and what it means. I close by saying this. In 1527, 10 years after posting his famous 95 Theses, that is 10 years after his deliverance from his own bondage to anguish, Martin Luther wrote these now famous words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. These are, of course, the opening words to Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that was a hymn submitted to me for this sermon series by both Greg Clements and Jack Anderson. 
And for both Greg and Jack, this hymn is a favorite because of the depth of theology that the lyrics convey. For as Greg and Jack both said to me in different ways, often the hymns and the songs with the most pleasing words and with the most delightful melodies are not the hymns and the songs that are most able to support our faith when our faith most needs to be supported. Sometimes we simply need a deeper, more robust theology to remind us who we really are and whose we really are. Well, I believe that Greg and Jack are right about that. And I also believe that the present moment is one of those times when our faith most needs this kind of deeper theological support. And so, therefore, remembering Luther this morning and remembering Tillich and remembering Paul and remembering our baptism, let us then close with these robust theological words, affirming them as true and of enormous support during this present moment of anguish. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. And his craft and his power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. But a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Oh, family, if we can but trust in that, talk about finding the courage to be. Amen.